Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 13 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode, uh, 13, uh, not an unlucky number at all, because uh, we get to talk about the Great West Invitational Postmortem. Uh, Scott just returned uh, yesterday uh, from uh, Great West. I did not, because I didn't get to go uh, this year, unfortunately. Uh, so I'm going to be asking Scott all kinds of uh, questions about the trip and stuff that happened both prior and after the meet and in the meet and all kinds of the awesome stuff that was actually happening as part of the Great West experience. Uh, I want to spend a few minutes uh, talking about a little bit of a CBQZ update in terms of the software that's there. There's an update that's going to be a version 15 is about ready to get released in the, in the foreseeable future. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And on a philosophical side of things, we want to talk a little bit about what are better versus less good quiz equipment configurations uh, in terms of like what kind of equipment we use for uh, jumping, you know, benches versus seats versus LEDs versus, you know, consoles versus laptops and all that kind of good stuff. So with all that said, let's uh, dive into Great West. So, Scott, I'm assuming you had some amount of fun, right? Oh, it was a blast the whole time, especially if you're a quizzer. <laughs> well, yes, but you had some fun, too, even as an adult. Oh, I had a ton of fun because I did not have a um, super-defined role when at the meet. I was neither a, a full-time coach or a full-time quiz master, and so I think the, the less responsibility allowed me to uh, enjoy the meet a little bit more than I have in past years. Very nice. So talk a little bit about, let's kind of walk through this uh, from a historical documentary perspective. Like what was kind of the, you know, you guys started out on Thursday. So this is, the meet is, is Friday and Saturday and you started out on the, on the trek uh, Thursday. Some folks from as far south as uh, Madras and uh, Coeur d'Alene, uh, not Coeur d'Alene. Uh, yeah, not Coeur d'Alene. That's where you ended up. Uh, Corvallis, mm -hmm. that Corvallis, that's the word I was looking for. So some folks from uh, Corvallis and Madras as far south there, some folks from the outskirts of the Seattle area, you guys kind of met up, head off to Coeur d'Alene as sort of base camp. Uh, kind of what was that sort of experience like? It was awesome. There were 20 quizzers and 10 adults going on the trip, and 16 of those quizzers and nine of those adults met up in Covington area as kind of our staging area. We met up early on Thursday morning. Everybody was on time with the documentation that they needed to go on the trip. And we, we took off um, just after 9, which was a great, a great time to take off. It was less important to be prompt this year because of um, where the meet was and the fact that we were just going to Coeur d'Alene on, on the first day. The years that we hosted in Montana, we would make the drive in one go. And so it was much more important to be on time in those years. But this, it was a little bit more leisurely. So we took off in around nine and made our way to Moses Lake um, in central Washington for lunch. And I think we had a bathroom stop or a gas stop on either side and made our way to Coeur d'Alene where we met up with our other four quizzers and one adult who came from the Oregon area. I don't know if all of those, if all those five, um, left from their own houses that morning or if any of them had done some of the driving to meet um, Thursday, uh, Wednesday night. But they met us in Coeur d'Alene. We were going to um, go to a really awesome park that we went to last year, but it was kind of raining. And so we, we pulled up at the park, all four vehicles, and I got out and opened the big doors to both big vans, and I said, 
we can play here in the um, in some slight rain, or we can go back to the the hotel and do some other stuff. And it was unanimous to go right back to the hotel and not go out in the rain at all. Um, and so we went to the hotel where I where I on the fly came up with some group games with some help, and the teams got team time where they could strategize. And then we we had um, a wonderful dinner that the Best Western pitched to me, and I took him up on it, and it was awesome in uh, kind of fancy dining. We had a pasta and salad buffet, and then after that, people swam or played cards and before going to bed around 10, 10.30 on Thursday night at the hotel. That's awesome. And, I mean, uh, Cuddy did her usual van organization uh, sort of thing. Uh, uh, what, what sort of activities – I mean, each van had a sort of a different sort of style or, or sort of entertainment thing that they were doing a- along the way, right? Yeah, so there's two main vehicles – and there's probably roughly 10 legs over the total trip there and back. And so that's 20 possible themes in a van at a given time. Um, and Cuddy came, you know, solicited ideas from the kids. And, you know, there was a, a riddle van where Cuddy had riddles of um, how a certain scenario came to be. And you had to ask yes or no questions to figure it out. There was, um, I don't know if middles and middles, r- mysteries and riddles. I think that those are different. Uh, but there was Encore, which is a song singing game. There was a worship singing van at one point. There was a Taylor Swift singing van at one point. There was a, a sleep van at one point. There was a study van. There was a mafia. There was a, um, what was it, Lawsuits Among You was the name, um, where there were legal discussions happening in a van at one point. Um, I know in the past there's been an apologetics or general religion discussion van. And so there's there's all manner vans that Cuddy organizes, that the kids tell her which one that they want to be in, and then after she tells them where they are, they change their mind on her. And so that happened throughout the whole trip, and the kids had a great time. That's awesome. So when you guys got up to the border, you left Coeur d'Alene, so Friday morning, um, and then Coeur d'Alene up to the border is not very, not very far, but, I mean, it is through kind of the north end of uh, – you, did you cross into Canada while you were still in Idaho, or did you go into Montana? No, we did it from Idaho at Eastport Crossing. So Friday morning, we took off early. So um, we left at 8 and drove about an, an an hour and 15 or so to Bonner's Ferry. And that's where we, we – people got gas if they needed it for their vehicles. But that was where we switched vans for the border. So children with their parents, if their parents were on the trip, or children with adults from their church – so that as we're going through the border, if there's any questions or complications, the adult that has the most information about a quizzer um, would be the one that has them in the vehicle. So that was our kind of reorg right in Bonner's Ferry. And then we drove, I believe, then through Sandpoint and up to Eastport, Idaho, where we crossed the border in just 17 minutes for, I believe, we had six vehicles at that time. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, Sandpoint is actually one of my favorite uh, vacation spots. Although uh, I think when you were going through Sandpoint this time, uh, you were a little bit of rain that uh, that day, right? There definitely was, but I could see the beach and the recreational area as we crossed a bridge. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we we tend to go on family vacations there, not every year, but but I think of the last four years we've gone three times or something like that. Um, and and of course, it's a tradition that uh, the one of the first things we do when we get there is we go have lunch. Uh, out on the water uh, or a restaurant that that is on the 
you know, right next to the beach, uh, in from one of the marinas and, uh, Evie orders a giant Idaho potato with all the fixins because that's just how she likes to roll. Uh, but I mean, yeah, it's a fun place. And then Bonners Ferry north of that is really gorgeous. I've never actually been to Bonners Ferry, but I've flown over it at like 4,000 feet. So I think that counts kind of. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a very pretty place. Um, you know, uh, northern Idaho, actually, yeah, northern Idaho is a, and, and western Montana are, are just gorgeous, uh, uh, gorgeous areas. And it was, it's fun to make that the drive from central and eastern Washington, which is kind of a barren wasteland of nothing cool to look at. And then you're into Coeur d'Alene, which is beautiful. And then if you drive up through Idaho to northern Idaho and then into Canada and then to the mountains, you can see the landscape slowly change to the rugged, beautiful mountainous terrain. Yeah, it absolutely is that. Definitely. So you got to the the, the border crossing uh, you were telling me before we were recording uh, was actually very convenient for you guys. It was actually fairly fast both directions. Yeah, it was 17 minutes. Um, on the way over, and I think it was less than 10 minutes on the way back. Um, and we had all of our ducks in a row. We had permission forms for all the kids. We've had uh, a manifest for every that had every participant on the trip in one document. And then for the few kids who had a single parent with them on the trip, they had notarized parental release forms because I've read that the border scrutinizes kids with only one parent um, because that one parent might be absconding with the child across the border against the other parents' wishes. So those two quizzers had um, notarized parental consent forms, and none of it was needed. Just the identification from everyone was all that was needed. Very nice. So you didn't, let's see, you went, after crossing the border, you went through Cranbrook on the way to the meet location, right? We did. Um, And I had a thought. Um, There's a nice Best Western in Coeur d'Alene with a huge water slide. And so theoretically, we can make a long day of driving and push all the way to to Cranbrook and then spend Friday morning doing a hike or something recreationally in Canada. Um, but that would be a change to the trip because we we love the Best Western in Coeur d'Alene that we go to because it has a pool, a wonderful breakfast, and now a wonderful group dinner that we know about. Yeah, we've uh... – it, that's that's the same one uh, that P&W has stayed at um, a few times, right? I have no idea because I don't remember any of the specifics from when I was a quizzer. And last year and this year were the only times that I've stayed at at that Best Western as um, an, an official or district coordinator. Uh, oh, I remember. It was Shiloh. That's what it is. There's a Shiloh Inn in Coeur d'Alene. That's the one that we used to go to. So I don't think I've actually been to the best. Uh, have I been to the Best Western in Coeur d'Alene? I do not know. Yeah, but Coeur d'Alene is a great place. Um, and it's it's shockingly pretty uh, in in that part of the country. Yeah, and so we we had lunch in Cranbrook, which was the one and only meal in in Canada that well that we had to purchase in Canada. So some of the kids with United States cash had to figure out that rigmarole, and pretty much the policy in restaurants is if it's four dollars Canadian, we will accept U.S. dollars for U.S. dollars for the four. Canadian bill. <laughs> yeah, okay. I can see how that can work out for everybody. Convenience it factor. A, it seemed a little harsh, but as a, a restaurant retail location, unless you have some exchange rate as part of your register, um, it's not something you can expect your, your employees to do consistently. So I understand just going with the simplicity. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I figure it's, it's an, it, it, you know, if you're, if you don't have Canadian currency and you're in Canada and they're willing to accept us currency, 
uh, I figure, you know, call it part of the uh, cost of doing business in Canada. I, I think that's totally reasonable. I mean, especially since, uh, you know, if you if you head into, you know, Sandpoint or Coeur d'Alene with Canadian currency, they're going to give you a funny look. It's true. But we, but we ate lunch there at a few different locations. Do you have any questions on our stop there before we get to our final leg of the journey? I don't think so. I'm very curious about the actual camp itself, uh, the final destination. So it was back in 2012 that Great West was at South Alberta Bible Camp, which is past where we were um, last year and this year at Crow's Nest Lake Bible Camp. And um, South Alberta Bible Camp, we had to take off Saturday after quizzing because it was an extra hour and a half or so. And so we wanted to make it I don't know if we were only going to Cranbrook or what, but we needed to make part of the drive home Saturday after quizzing was finished. And it was so snowy and coming over Crow's Nest Pass that it was kind of a harrowing drive for those who were awake, which were pretty much just the drivers. Um, And it, it was scary, and we had some very wonderful driving that kept us all safe. And this camp is maybe half, not halfway up, well, partway to the summit of Crow's Nest Pass, but it is not all the way to the summit. And so last year there was snow. It snowed a Saturday evening after quizzing was done. But by the morning, a plow had come through and there wasn't a whole lot of grade on the road and it wasn't snowing. And so visibility was fine and the roads were fine. Um, but that kind of gives you a picture of this camp is kind of halfway up a mountain pass. And so we are totally in the mountains. I have pictures of a big mountain right next to the camp. Um, you just you look you look up and there's a big beautiful mountain there covered in mist and clouds in the morning and it was wonderful. Well, and there's also a big beautiful lake right there. Um, I I was very tempted to fly over and land on the lake because uh, I mean it just it looks gorgeous up there. We, yeah, we passed a lot of lakes. I don't recall one being significantly larger than than another, but I'm sure we did. It might have been frozen over when we were going by. I think we had a high in the 20s one of the days and a low in the teens it warmed up by the last day uh fahrenheit or canadian i'm assuming fahrenheit uh unless my phone at weather app sneakily converted it to celsius because we were in canada which i do not believe it did i believe it was reporting in fahrenheit the whole time wow so that's quite chilly it was wow yeah, I was going to say like 20 degrees uh, Canadian actually uh is is uh you know maybe maybe take the coat off weather. Um interesting. So what was uh, what was the meat like itself like in terms of, you know, quizzing style and speed or quiz mastering style relative to either other great west meats or actually probably more interestingly for folks who, you know, didn't go to great west, you know, compare it to sort of district level, what are kind of things that are different and what are kind of things that you noticed about it? There were three quiz rooms, so not four, just three quiz rooms, and there were only 13 teams quizzing, and each team had six prelims. The uh, The person running the meet wanted to have each of the 13 teams, because they had six prelims, you have 12 opponents in those prelims, wanted to have them be 12 unique opponents um, for the 12 other participating teams in the meet. And to do this, he... He couldn't figure out an easy way to do it, so he wrote a very simple macro in Excel that brute force randomly generated a scenario and said, is this a valid scenario, or does it have two teams quizzing in the same time slot, or a team not quizzing against 12 unique opponents? And it tested one scenario per second, and 12 hours and 10 minutes after he started the macro running, he had a valid solution for the meet. Okay. 
And so that was the draw. And there may have been faster ways to do it, but I sure appreciate the care put into, um, you know, really, really wanting to have unique opponents for each of the prelims. And then 13 teams is a pretty unique number of teams. And a non-consolation, non-semifinal 13-team bracket was constructed with seeded teams and buys for the top four and double elimination and you have to win two to get into finals just like we're used to and so i thought it was i really appreciate when such care is is put into um putting together a meet because you don't always see it and i i really appreciated it yeah yeah fantastic so how did uh, pnw teams do I think we did quite well considering that we were so young. Um, we had 12 Great West rookies, and we had so many Keyverse quizzers. So they were headed to the meet knowing only Pacific Northwest Keyverses, and the finish the verse and quote questions at the meet could come from a lot of different verses. And so I think they did really well. In general, the meet was very... I thought the timing of jumps was really good for the whole meet. I saw very few bad W jumps by any team, uh, including Pacific Northwest. We had we had a handful in there, but it seemed like a very smart jumped meet where all of the quizzers and teams were pushing the edge of how well they had studied and the edge needed to jump and get questions right at a pace that allowed your team to keep, keep adding to their score. Uh, but there was not a whole lot of really poorly timed jumping on the fast end, which which it was really nice. And I think when the jumping is that precise, it puts an, on, an extra onus on Quizmasters to be precise and reasonably deliberate in their timing to allow Quizzers to jump at those very finely tuned differing speeds of, say, two and a quarter syllables versus um, one and three quarter syllable or two syllables and only a mouth shape but nothing audible after the two syllables. Uh, and I think the Quizmasters did a good job allowing that. That's awesome. That's really awesome. What kind of a, a, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, but talk a little bit about the equipment that was used there. You know, it, it relative to what we see at uh, PNW. So we had quiz benches in all three rooms, and they were from Mike Peters, who is producing the benches now, and they were super high quality and worked the whole meet. And I don't think I didn't recall a single situation of a light being off or a light not working or anything of that nature. So they still do light checks before every meet, just like we do, but the equipment was reliable. The benches had a nice prominent click and really gave the quizzers good feedback about where their light was, and I really appreciated that. And so I was actually able to quiz master, I think just, no, I quiz mastered seven quizzes over the course of the meet. I wasn't, didn't know if I would, was going to be needed to Quizmaster, but I ended up being needed to. And I really had to make a point of talking loud as I was um, looking for the jump light to come on because everyone was jumping at pretty much the same time, and all of those 12 clicks together meant that I needed to keep my question reading volume very high so that the quizzers could hear um, what I was saying right at the point that they jumped. Very interesting. Well, and then, so then after quizzing on Saturday, you guys uh, stayed the night, one more night at the camp, right? And then departed Sunday morning? That's correct. Yeah, usually there's a, a, a game for all the quizzers Saturday after quizzing that is outdoors. But they decided to scrap it this year. It was decided on by all the adults. 
because there had been snow earlier in the week during moderate temperatures that had melted and frozen into basically a sheet of ice on the whole camp. And then snow had come in on top of it. So there was kind of light, powdery snow with um, hard, slippery ice underneath it. And so they decided to not have a running outside activity after quizzing. But there were a few different inside games that happened, and the kids got to stay up until 2 a.m. in the main building, hanging out with <laughs> quizzers for the, from the other districts. Awesome. The, the meet director was very clever. He announced to the quizzers during announcements, it's their lucky day. There is no curfew Saturday night, but there is a curfew at 2 a.m. Sunday morning. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Uh, so then uh, Sunday morning after uh, rousting the exhausted quizzers uh, out of their beds and into the vans, you guys had sort of the trip saga to get back. I mean, the, the, now the there was there was snow that uh, ended up not being that big of a deal for you guys. But I mean, it was for some the border crossing wasn't that big of a deal, but I mean, you kind of, you guys kind of road warriored it back uh, home all in one stretch, right? We did. And so I had everyone on point in the morning. They had to be packed and have their luggage in the appropriate van by 7 a.m. And it turns out very, uh, no PNW quizzer stayed up until the 2 a.m. curfew. The majority went to bed somewhere between 10 o'clock and midnight. Very nice. But um, they had to load their luggage in the vans for their destination so that we did not have to do a bunch of repacking anytime people needed to branch off. And then they had breakfast at 7 o'clock, which is when breakfast started. And we, then they had to go clean their cabins. And then we left at 8. So we had to pack a lot in the morning, but they were all up. Some of them needed a little, little bit more prodding to be packed and done with breakfast on time. But we left right at 8 o'clock. We um, – we had, I think, both vans get get stuck in snow for about 20 seconds, um, and then two minutes down the road, we had one van need to go back for a forgotten item, but that delayed us seven minutes, and we were off on the road. The first 10 miles required us to go a little bit slower than the speed limit, but not unduly, and we forged ahead. We got to Cranbrook. We did stop in Cranbrook for gas, and kids with remaining loonies and toonies bought some candy. We crossed the border in seven minutes back into the United States. Um, all of our teenagers without international cell plans got deluged with messages that had been building up while they were in Canada. Um, we had we pushed all the way to Post Falls, Idaho, which is actually just west of Coeur d'Alene, and we had lunch there at Cabela's because Cabela's has a restaurant where you can get elk and bison burgers if you want. Mm, yummy. And that's, a, that's always a nice stop for the kids. And that is where we sadly said goodbye to the Oregon crew because somewhere around Spokane, they diverted south to their direct route back to um, kind of mid-central-ish Oregon. And then we pushed on to through Spokane and Ellensburg for a quick quick ice cream stop and then back to ABC in Covington where we arrived at 6.35 p.m. From there, a car full of Puyallup quizzers and adults took off for Puyallup, which was only about another 25 minutes down the road. But the crew from Grays Harbor or Aberdeen, Washington, had another couple hours to get back home. But I think they and they also had to stop for dinner because we pushed pushed on through dinner. But I think they made it home 
around 8.45 to 9.30, depending on where they all lived out in Aberdeen. Yeah. That's not too horrible. I mean, it, it, it seems really long, but I mean, with a lot of stops and, and certainly a lot of fun being had along the way. Absolutely. So, I, you know, the time goes goes by really fast for the kids, for sure. I do miss the days when we all traveled um, in a bus together. And I mean, even then, when we dropped off Yakima and Moses Lake quizzers in Moses Lake or uh, Ellensburg, I mean, that was always a sad a sad time because you felt like it was this, almost the skeleton crew heading back to um, Seattle-ish area. But I think, you know, geography is what geography is. So we kind of split off a big group in Spokane, and but the rest headed on back to ABC. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So what are some of the – what are kind of lessons that you learned from this particular experience? I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, team construction, I, I hear there was some – conversation about you know stacking versus not or striping versus not or snaking or all these sorts of different ways of constructing different teams and so forth but what what are sort of the uh the feedback that you heard about uh regarding that well i didn't i didn't have a whole wide range of feedback but there are some ideas about how to construct teams for great west differently that might get us better results while we're at great west um i think the the goals and reasons behind how we've constructed teams has changed for varying reasons over over the years. When I quizzed, we took five teams of five, and the meet counted for 5% of our yearly average. And so because it counted, the teams um, needed to be constructed as objectively and evenly as possible. And so they just snaked quizzers. One to five were on... A, we're on um, different teams, and then six through ten, kind of coming back on the snake, we're on different teams, and then the snake kept going. So that was one way to do it that I think is just about the only way to do it if you want to count Great West averages for um, another purpose. And then there came a time in the, the mid-2000s when PNW was a little bit smaller and um, kind of younger and inexperienced, and they took four teams of four, so only 16 quizzers instead of 25. And there were a there was a year or two there where PNW was was pretty much taking the last four or five spots, and I think the desire to create a more competitive team led to stacking or putting a lot of your top quizzers on a single team. And then that is kind of some aspects of that have perpetuated on through to today, where we take five teams of four, so no subs for a total of 20 quizzers, but we do stack the top team. There were a few years where we would stack our top four quizzers on one team and our next four on another team. Um kind of as a preparation for internationals, since they would probably be quizzing together to internationals. And there's a lot of different potential goals that, that we could uh, try to meet uh, when we're constructing teams. And I think it definitely warrants continued discussion about which goals are most important to us as a district and what are the, the outcomes or the consequences of how we... I say consequences like it's negative, but the positive or negative consequences of how we decide to construct teams. I know that for a stacked PNW1 team, especially when you know that no other team at the meet is stacked, you're kind of expected to win. And if you don't, you've kind of failed, which is a really kind of toxic expectation to have when you're trying to execute and quiz well at a meet. And I've seen it at internationals when uh, there are multiple teams from the same district. The top team has all the expectations. They should do way better than the other team. And a lot of times, the team without any expectations has freedom of mind to quiz really, really well. And 
I think it's helpful to understand that those are the implications. Um, and there are still going to be times when putting a lot of pressure on, on quizzers is, is necessary because regardless of what the expectations are, there will be pressure situations, whether you're at Great Western Internationals, that you have to be able to compose yourself in and still perform in. Yeah, absolutely. I think well, we also, we also had our quizzers who are keyverse quizzers, um, I think not have the greatest experience quizzing wise competitively. And I know it's motivated at least a few of them to memorize the full material next year, which is, is kind of a natural outcome. You know, at the district level, you always want to encourage quizzers to memorize as many verses as they want to memorize and maybe a few more than that. And a lot of them don't want to memorize the whole material. And so picking key verses is really the easiest path to getting um, consistently a few questions or quiz. And this year, a lot of those quizzers uh, were able to make it to Great West, but had a kind of a tough time um, winning jumps on things that they knew. I saw a lot of our key quizzers, as they were had been encouraged and as they were being coached to do, win jumps on Kiever's questions at wonderful, precise timing, but 50% or two-thirds of the time, it, it was a verse that they were not prepared um, to answer for, which was unfortunate because they had gotten half the battle kind of right once you're at the meet, which is winning a jump on a good timing, but they weren't able to see really any results. There were a few cases where they, they got verses they knew, but I think that experience, even if it wasn't the greatest competitively for them this year, I think shows them what it does take to get questions at a meet like Great West that's out of the district. And if that's something that they're interested in, they they now know how they should be preparing during the whole district year for those sorts of out of district meets, which I think is really cool. Awesome, awesome. I'm always I'm always glad to hear of anything. Uh, that's going to motivate uh, quizzers to memorize more. Even, you know, certainly I'd, I'd prefer them to be positive experiences that uh, get people excited to memorize more. But sometimes the neg- slightly negative ones can actually be kind of motivating too. Uh, I've, I've, I've got a, a person who works for me, uh, one of my employees, who uh, he's a software engineer and he sometimes refers to it as rage coding when he gets so angry at a particular problem that he rage codes. Uh, and he sometimes ends up with very intelligent uh, and wonderful work as a result of his sort of, I mean, he's not really in a rage. It's just sort of what he calls it, but this sort of like really competitive against the problem and try to trying to solve a particular problem. Uh, it's, it's uh, great to hear of any kind of uh, anything that gets quizzers kind of pushes them and, and gets under their skin and says, yeah, I, I'm going to, I'm going to try a little bit harder. I'm going to try this other approach to something a different attack vector to do better uh, each, each meet and each year. Yeah, I think it's really great. And it's nice that we can, provide such a wide-ranging experience at Great West where there's the whole travel aspect, there's the whole team aspect, there's the whole getting to um, get to know quizzers from other districts, and all of that that provides all kinds of fun so that if in the times that you're quizzing you had some frustrating experiences, it doesn't mean that the the trip as a whole was frustrating. In fact, probably 98% of it was a ton of fun. Yeah, because, absolutely. Because most people focus on um, the trip and hanging out with their friends and not on the 2% they spend quizzing, which is how I was. But I am quite atypical, I find. <laughs> Very cool. Any other kind of thoughts, final thoughts about Great West? Yeah, I think it it, it reinforced for me how how precise the timing has to be at a level like that. Among the top teams, 
you would you would see quizzers battling for questions, and one would go just a tiny bit too fast on a reference, and then make an error. And then another one would go at the precise edge to jump and get the verse correct and answer it correctly. And the difference in timing and how that affects um, your accuracy among quizzers who all know the material to the same degree is incredible to me. And so if you are going to be a really good team at Great West Internationals, your quizzers, all quizzers on the team have to consistently hit the correct timing that you've agreed upon. And if even one of you is off, it can really throw off the whole team because of you're making errors and then forcing the team to sit out for questions. And, um, yeah, it just requires really precise timing every single question that you jump on. Awesome. Well, should we move on? Yeah, I think so. I think we, we covered we covered Great West in pretty good detail. I'm sure there's tons more I could say. But, yeah, let's totally move on. All right. Well, let's see. I wanted to give a CBQZ update a bit. Um, so currently the app that is uh, out there in production right now, so if you went to cbqz.org slash app, uh, you're going to see version 14. Uh, and it's been version 14 for a while. Uh, I've, I usually try to do fairly rapid, frequent releases, uh, but we've been kind of sitting on version 14 for, uh, golly, couple months now i think um the the big reason is because i have been working on a big feature edition and that is version 15 uh and version 15 is about call it maybe 80 percent complete right now i mean that's a rough guess but basically it is a big feature edition uh that involves scorekeeping so essentially uh, you know, the same interface that, you know, you currently see under CBQZ is going to stay the same, except under the, uh, there's some reconfigurations around how you start getting into a particular quiz. But then when you're in a quiz, you'll have a little kind of miniature score sheet off into the bottom uh, right hand corner. Somebody jumps, you click their name, uh, and then you mark whether it's correct, incorrect, you know, fouls, subs, challenges, all the usual sort of uh, stuff that you would mark on a score sheet. And it's uh, it's designed to be simple enough that any quiz master can easily do this while running a quiz. So you don't have to necessarily be distracted by uh, a lot of, of, of calculations or anything like that. You just click buttons of like, this person did this, they jumped, they got it correct, they got it, uh, they jumped, they got it incorrect, there was a no jump here, whatever. And then all of the scores keeping stuff just sort of magically happens in the background. As a result of, of this work for scorekeeping though, and kind of, and sort of why this version 15 is sort of ballooned in complexity is because to get scorekeeping to work in a way that is actually reasonable, uh, in terms of like, you know, I want to be able to track the scores and have them get calculated correctly. I want to be able to store that data and be able to run stats on that data or, or more particularly, I know that Scott wants to run stats on that data. So, you know, being able to store and retrieve it and all that kind of stuff and analyze quizzes after the fact and so forth. The, the big sort of ballooning of the scope of this thing is around related features to making scorekeeping work. And so one of the things that, that comes into play is, uh, in version 14, you define, like if you're a quiz master, you have your set of, uh, or a coach, you have a set of uh, questions that you've written or somebody else has written and, and has, you know, shared to you or something. And you say like, okay, I want, you know, these particular chapters or all the chapters and wait the last, you know, four or six or whatever at 50% or whatever. You, you define all that stuff out. You define out your uh, jump uh, question, your question type 
uh, distribution for a particular quiz, and then you say, okay, go, generate the quiz. And the system generates a quiz, you're in the quiz, and you run through it to the end, and then you're done, right? Um, well, one of the things with scorekeeping is that I wanted the ability to essentially pre-generate an entire meets worth of quizzes. So the idea of saying, well, you know, quiz number seven is in Cuddy's room, quiz number eight is in Scott's room, quiz number nine is in Griffin's room, that kind of thing. And just kind of laying all of those out and saying, okay, this, this quiz starts at this particular time in this particular room. These are the teams that are going to be in that particular quiz in terms of like the team names, the quizzer numbers or the quiz bib numbers and the quizzer names themselves. And, and all of that stuff needs to be sort of preset for each of these quizzes that you generate up and in, into a particular meet. And the reason that I wanted to be able to have that there is if I'm a quiz master in a, you know, let's say I'm in room three and I am, I've just finished up a quiz. I'm starting the next quiz. I don't want to be fumbling around with settings and I don't want to be fumbling around with like, okay, who, who's in this particular quiz and setting them up in a particular order in the software. I just want it to just go. I just want to say like, okay, I'm, I was doing quiz, whatever it was before. Now I'm doing this other quiz, hit the go button and everything just loads up, uh, for me. And so, uh, as a result of, sort of adding that requirement, there's also other sorts of things that kind of fall into place here. One of them is quiz pre-generation. So the idea of saying, well, it pre-selects the questions and stores them for every single quiz uh, that you that you elect to pre-generate and then save. And then there is, of course, the idea of saving a quiz entirely. So you can get through question 12, exit the quiz, do something else, come back to the quiz. I don't know why on earth you would ever need to do that in practice uh, or or in 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 production, like, like why in a quiz meet you would ever need to do that, but technically you could. Uh, but one thing I thought was particularly interesting was around the idea of, and we kind of talked about this, I think last podcast or two, where uh, in P&W, what I'm trying to do is recruit a quiz master pool larger than the number of rooms that we're currently serving. So we, we currently operate four rooms. I wanted to try to get maybe six quiz masters so that we can kind of rotate around a little bit. And the idea being that, you know, if I've got my laptop, I can certainly just leave it in the room and let somebody else come in and use their laptop if they, or sorry, use my laptop in that same room if they want to, or they might prefer their own equipment. And so at any particular time, you know, I can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm in room three, but somebody's coming in to sub me out. So now I'm, now I'm on a break. Oh, you know, uh, Scott wants a break. So I'll go sub into room one and, you know, run one or two quizzes there. Instead of having all of those sort of saved uh, or, or generated at the, at one after the other or saved in terms of like these are the ones that are stacked onto one particular computer, I can go into room one with my uh, laptop and say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to pick up, you know, whatever the next quiz is and have all of that data just load into my system. And then, of course, all the other uh, quiz rooms will be able to see the, per the, the, the progress of all the other rooms. So, for example, like, you know, Scott's in room one. And he gets, there's a timeout and he's like, I wonder how the rest of the meet is going on. He can see rooms two, three, and four and say like, oh yeah, two, three, and four are at this particular question number of this particular quiz. You know, room two is a little bit behind, room three is a little bit ahead, uh, four is kind of straight on or whatever it is. He can kind of see where that kind of stacks up. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a nice little communication tool all sort of automatically wrapped into that. Uh, so version 15 is probably going to launch 
early next week, give or take a little bit. Um, I'm not sure exactly what day, maybe Wednesday. Um, there's some competing, uh, just being completely frank, there's, there's a little bit of, of competition for my time right now. I'm actually studying uh, for my instrument uh, check ride in aviation, basically so I can fly through clouds. Uh, and that's coming up uh, a week from today. So uh, that's that's sort of distracting me a bit. But I th I'm thinking version 15 comes out sometime, you know, early to middle of, of next week, Tuesday, Wednesday of next week or something like that. If you are currently using CBQZ, you will get an email from me before version 15 launches that'll have some instructions and explain the changes that are happening, that kind of stuff. It's not, it sounds like it's a big deal. You can still use CBQZ in exactly the same way that you have been. You don't have to do the whole, you know, quiz pre-generation stuff. You don't have to do quiz saving. You can just go in there and say, just give me a quiz. I don't care about the scorekeeping stuff. It'll all just work by default. Um, but I, I'll get you, you know, some heads up that the new functionality is coming in that's optionally available for you to use. Um, the other thing is, if you're using CBQZ and you're from a non-PNW district, um, I would very much like to hear from you. I sort of, well, I, I can see everybody who signed up for an account, and I can, I can guess, you know, who's from what district and so forth. But what I'd really love to be able to do is set you up with your own district. If you're from a non-PNW district, I'd really love to set up like a CMD or or whatever uh, kind of district for you in particular uh, so that you guys can share uh, materials with each other. You can share, share quiz sets with each other. Uh, your officials can run quizzes and, and uh, jump between quiz rooms if they want to. All of that kind of good functionality is available there uh, and not necessarily available to you if you uh, keep your account within PNW's district in the program. You certainly can. I mean, I, I don't particularly care, uh, but I think it'd be way cooler if you had your own district um, because you could kind of do your own things. The other thing about it, the, the one last thing, final thing about CBQZ is that I've been doing my best, not flawlessly, but I've been doing my best to design the system around the idea that each district can alter as much as possible and still have the thing work. So you can have your own question type distributions. You can have your own uh, material distribution. Uh, everything can be unique for your particular program, even how you do scoring, uh, you know, in terms of like what counts as a third person bonus, what counts as a fourth quizzer bonus, what are the values of those bonuses, all of that stuff can be customized to your particular district. So if you're interested in any of that, please uh, email me. And I think I've babbled enough about CBQZ, Scott, so why don't you take it away with some new topic? You're going to have to fill me in on the next topic, Griffin, because I have lost my notes. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, so we, the last topic that was on our agenda was kind of a, a philosophical discussion around the better versus less good quiz equipment configuration. So this is kind of the idea of, of benches versus seats, uh, LEDs versus uh, lights that show up on a laptop, uh, the beep versus no beep. Uh, I know you have very strong opinions about the beep versus no beep uh, philosophy and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, I'll kind of start off with a couple of observations from my point of view. And I know Scott has some very strong opinions uh, from his point of view. And um, hopefully we'll find something to disagree with. That's the one, the other thing that I've been noticing. Our, our, our podcasts are, we tend to agree way too much, um, which kind of leads to a boring uh, podcast. We need to disagree more. Um, so I don't know. I'll, I'll try to work on that. Um, but anyway, 
so benches versus seats. Uh, yeah. So in my opinion, I think benches are vastly better than seats in terms of the actual quizzing itself, right? So if you're sitting on a, on a bench, you get this nice, usually an audible click. Uh, it might be louder. It might be softer, but there's usually some sort of audible thing, but there's also kind of this feel to it as well, where you can feel it click underneath you. And so what's great about it is there's no ambiguity. You can, you can structure how you're sitting. You can configure yourself. You can put exactly the right of uh, amount of muscle pressure or leaning over or whatever that you want to do. So you can get right on the edge of that click so that the tiniest amount of muscle movement will will activate your seat. And I love that about benches. Uh, they're vastly superior in that regard to seat, but they are also heavy and bulky and difficult to transport. And so like in, in all the ways outside of the actual quiz itself, seats are better than benches, but in the quiz itself, benches are better than seats. So I don't know, Scott, what do you think about that? Unfortunately, I'm going to agree with everything that you said, Griffin. I think that benches are great because they remove so many variables from the type of seat to the type of pad to the condition of the seat and the pad because the benches are all four seats integrated as one. Everything is completely consistent or 98% consistent. And so it's it's a really quality quizzing experience. I do think the logistical hurdles are pretty large unless you have someone with a trailer willing to transport all your benches for a meet, which I know some districts do because they run five to 10 quiz rooms with benches in every single room. Unless you have a setup like that, it's a chore to transport and store benches. And the cost is, is quite great. You know, it's 1500, $1,500 to $2,000 us for a full, a full quiz rooms worth of equipment that has benches in it. And I think those things are hurdles to people getting benches. And they're also, I'm not going to say they're tough to maintain because I I think they're constructed quite simply. But unless you know what you're doing, you can't fix them yourself, and they're not a product that you can just ship back to the manufacturer or get a, a, a replacement for because of their, again, size and weight. So there's there's definitely a huge pro and a huge con to them. And I I, I wonder if at some point in the future, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's 50 years, that all all forms of Bible quizzing in all denominations use hand button quizzing because of how unbelievably cheap and easy to transport it would be. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. You know, I just, I, I wonder, I wonder about how feasible it is for a single bench manufacturer to provide benches at the cost that they're con- currently consider, um, supplying them at for every single quizzing uh, church and district within CMA Bible quizzing. And I think the notion of pads is going to go away faster than we think because metal folding chairs without padding are pretty much gone. I don't know of companies that make them anymore. They probably exist somewhere, but it's really, really hard to find those. It's much easier to find lighter plastic chairs that even if they have a hard top have quite a curve to them. And all those situations make for very inconsistent quiz jumping experiences and unless there is a a cheap solution that all churches can have access to and really own and keep at a church, uh, I think pads are almost going to be much more unfeasible to use than benches. And at the point that pads are unfeasible to use, unless benches can fill the void, then you need a different solution. Yeah, I I, I joke, but uh, I completely agree. I, I think 
ultimately we need to see uh, and and who knows how soon it's going to happen i think it's actually going to happen a lot faster than 50 years but i i think we do need to embrace the reality of a future that does not have benches or seats and has hand buzzers uh, i i several other uh quizzing programs have gone to that uh non-cma programs and i think they're better for it as a result yeah I totally think so. It would definitely not be my first choice because I love the jumping experience. I think the uniqueness matters for something. I, I just am continually seeing um, the pros outweigh those pro- the pros of switching out- outweigh the current pros that we have. But um, yeah, some of the other things visible to quizzer LEDs. I think this is huge that a lot of a lot of equipment doesn't have, which is a way for quizzers to visually see when they have jumped. Some of the quiz boxes have lights on the backs of them for the quizzers, which I think is awesome. And when we still had those scoreboards that were off, that could be placed off to the sides, the quizzers could also see the exact moment that they jumped. And those can be very, very helpful for the quizzers. The audible click on benches does help, but seeing when you jump helps you dial in that edge of your jump and what movement is actually going to trigger your jump. Yeah, I, also I think, agree. Anything else on that one? Well, I mean... I, I, I agree with what, what you said. I think the LEDs are really valuable regardless of benches or seats, but I think they become tremendously valuable with the seats and they become mildly valuable with benches because I mean, with the benches, like you've got the audible thing, you've got the, the, the physical click, you can feel where the seat is. Um, there are, there are proxies for the LED indication, but with the seat, there, there just is, there is no proxy. And so like there, there've been a number, I can't even tell you the number of times it, it happens all the time in my room where we, you know, we're using seats and I will say, because I'm, I'm linguistically programmed from 20 years ago, I will say, watch your lights. And then I realize, well, they can't, they can't see anything. Um, as a, as a warning of saying like people are, their lights are flashing. They're going to end up with a foul. If I, if I start reading the question and, uh, I'm, I'm trying to warn them because I don't want to give them a foul, but they have nothing to go on. They have absolutely no way to know, like, how much am I sitting on this to make it deactivate? And of course, what that ultimately leads to is somebody, if they're concerned about it, which they should be, they're going to be putting more pressure on the seat than is necessary, which means their jumping is going to, as a direct result, be slower. Uh, and doing that consistently uh, and reliably from room to room, I think it's an extra uh, an extra obstacle that we put onto the quizzers and is demotivating. And, and I'd love to be able to see a situation where quizzers can, can have those LEDs can see what's going on. Totally. It would be great for them to have that sort of feedback. You have a bullet on here for beep versus no beep when the quizzers light is triggered. And we're really talking about a one central beep, not a beep at each seat, but a beep on the somewhere where the quizmaster is. So there's audio feedback to all the participants and the quizmaster when someone jumps. Yeah, I kind of I kind of hate this. A lot of people really like it, but to me, the point at which a quizzer jumps is often going to be the most important. Po- well, it is the most important point of the jump, both for what is the final audible syllable that I'm hearing, and specifically how does it sound, especially if it's the middle of a word. I I, I was quizmastering and I said the word say, but I was actually going for saved. And any notion of what was coming next would have helped a quizzer know what that was, both from a mouth shape, but also from a sound. And to me, introducing a beep at that exact moment 
is going to inhibit the quizzer's ability to pick up that um, that feedback. And one thing I noticed on the quiz boxes that we were using that I've used before, but somehow I have never noticed, is there is one central LED light that gets triggered when any quizzer's light gets triggered. So the quiz master only has to look one place. They don't have to kind of have a loose scan with peripheral vision on 12 lights. They're just looking at one single light right by the, the main arm reset button. And so as soon as that light comes on, you stop reading, and then you, fi- you look for the light that actually triggered it and identify that quizzer by name. And to me, that's plenty for the quiz master. I don't need a beep to help me stop reading the question. Yeah, I used to like the beep uh, because it was one of those things where I could make sure that I wasn't providing additional material. Uh, but yeah, I have since changed my mind. And despite the fact that I'm desperately trying to find something to disagree with you on, I agree completely. Uh, no beep is superior to beep. Uh, for a beginning, for a beginning quiz master, a beep might be helpful, but yeah, but I would say in training only, uh, maybe, at, maybe at the church level or something, but at a meet, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. And you also have a bullet on here for software integration versus standalone. Now, I, I came to love software integration because viewing, viewing the lights on a laptop to me was a lot easier. And I think that was also because I had my questions on a laptop so I could place the lights visually right next to the question that I was reading. So my eyes were almost not moving um, between the question and the light that I was looking at. Whereas if you have paper questions and a quiz box, you either have to put the, those, uh, the beginning of the question to kind of your, your human RAM memory, or um, you have to look away from the lights for a bit of time. And neither of those are really a good way to go about things. So I think that's why I liked the software integration, but, I, but I've since found that the integration causes a lot more complications than the pros that you gain. And I think the simplicity of standalone hardware that doesn't require integration to software and an operating system um, leads to more smooth meets, less maintenance, time and cost, and greater flexibility because you are not required. You're not requiring a quiz master to have um, both a laptop, but also a laptop of a specific operating system. Yeah, absolutely. I'm playing around with some new seat uh, design. I'm not an electrical engineer at all, um, but I can read some books and I've got some folks helping me out here. Uh, by the way, if you happen to be a, an electrical engineer, please email me. I would very much like to talk to you to, you know, kind of suck some wisdom out of your brain. Uh, but I'm, I'm playing around with the idea of, of, uh, well, not playing around with the idea of designing it. I, we're actually in the process of playing around with a new design for new quiz seats. And one of the things that I'm very keen on with the new design is to have the, uh, have LEDs. So it's a standalone system, but have the LED indication lights be on a separate strip that kind of uh, has these little footy, feety kind of things such that you can actually put it on the top edge of your laptop. So essentially the LEDs that you're looking at and the LEDs that the quizzers are looking at are the same LEDs. They're sitting right there at the top edge of your laptop. And so if you've got a, you know, if you're using CBQZ on a laptop or you're using, you know, Excel or whatever kind of electric, uh, electronic means of showing up questions on your laptop, you can have your question right there, the LEDs right there. And the other thing that I kind of like about this is that the LEDs 
are from the quizzer's perspective visually very close to where their eyes should be anyway their eyes should be on the quizmaster's mouth and so the idea that the the lights are just very closely below that at the top edge of the laptop screen means that they're all sort of looking generally in the same direction all the time and of course the best part about this is that when i say watch your lights uh, the, the quizzers can actually know what I'm talking about, and it's actually a useful thing for me to say again, um, because there's no way I'm going to reprogram my brain. Uh, I've tried. It doesn't work. Uh, I'm too old. <laughs> Sounds really cool, Griffin. I'd love to have something that I can place or stick right, right on a laptop or next to it. Yeah, yeah. My, my goal is to have it be right up there at the top. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how to how that's going to work practically, but um, maybe some little rubber feet things where it can kind of dangle off the side a little bit and, and just kind of not hooks to the edge, but I guess kind of hooks to the top edge of the laptop or something like that. Uh, that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm what I'm hoping for. Sounds cool. Well, anything else you want to talk about in terms of we haven't been able to find anything to dis- disagree with. I'm very disappointed. Hmm. Maybe we should take that as homework and brainstorm things that we would disagree about. That sounds like a good plan. All right. Episode 14, everything that is going to be everything that Scott and I can think of that we disagree about. That sounds like a very good podcast, but except for the fact that there's not going to be nothing on the podcast. Um, so maybe it'll be it'll either be a very interesting podcast or very boring. We'll find out. We will. All right. Well, with that, uh, I will close by saying rem- a, a reminder to everyone, please email us. Uh, even just to say that you're listening, we love to hear from you. Uh, email us at iq at cbqz.org, uh, iq for inside quizzing at cbqz.org, and follow us on Twitter at inside quizzing. Awesome. Happy studying, everybody. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you later, Scott.